The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. This is a rapid reaction episode. An important trial was published. You want to know about it, but maybe haven't had enough time to dive in just yet. Well, let's start right here. Today's article is the Interact 3 trial, published online ahead of print in Lancet. And today's rapid reaction episode actually features two guests. So Keaton Smetana joins me for the bulk of the episode to talk about the trial, dig into the results, and how we think practice may change, plus much, much more. And in the middle, Todd Miano brilliantly breaks down the statistics of this study. Todd is one of the first guests I ever had. He was gracious enough to join again. So he goes into considerations when reading the study. Was it the author's fault? Why they likely didn't choose another design? Tons more. Um, Awesome, awesome job. Uh, And Todd references a couple figures in his talk. And the two figures he's mentioning, they're not only in the supplementary appendix, but they're linked in the episode description. They'll be posted on social media, Pharmacy to Dose, uh, and PharmacyToDose.com. So you'll visually be able to see uh, what he's referencing. Extremely grateful for both of them. I thought they did an excellent job going uh, over all the details of the Interact 3 trial. Uh, Lots more content coming very soon, including review of research from a recent conference, another rapid reaction episode, and a clinical topic. That's exactly right. Uh, The announcements are not done either. Nominations end for the 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards this Friday, June 23rd. There is still plenty of time to nominate. Link for nominations are in the episode description. Show your peers and colleagues some love. Now let's get this bundle discussion underway. The Interact 3 Rapid Reaction episode begins right now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And with me now, Keaton Smetana, and Keaton earned his degree from the University of Tennessee College of Pharmacy, completed his residency training in critical care at the University of Kentucky Chandler Medical Center, and uh, after six years of experience as a neurocritical care at the, he put in the the for the record team, the Ohio State University Medical Center, he transitioned into his role as clinical manager at the Ohio Health Riverside Methodist Hospital, and he's joining us today 
for Rapid Reaction episode, Interact 3. Keaton, I appreciate you joining me today. How are you? I'm good, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Excited to get the chance to talk about this trial. And we have so much to dig into. So Interact 3, the third intensive care bundle with blood pressure reduction in acute cerebral hemorrhage trial, Interact 3, right? So um, open access, pull up those PDFs. So Interact 3, so Keaton, right, we're starting off. Give us a recap of season two, a.k.a. Interact 2, or, you know, what's our refresher? What do we need to make sure we're up to speed with uh, previous research before we kind of dive into this? Yeah, I think before we get into season two, there's kind of a nice story uh, that unfolded, you know, the decade before we get to Interact 3 that's worth commenting on. And part of it leads into kind of the why behind this. So when we think about our ICH population, studies have found that about 36 to 73% of ICA, uh, patients with ICH will have hematoma expansion within three hours of ICTUS. And this has been associated with worse functional outcomes. So the intent was trying to focus on blood pressure control, was trying to find the fine balance between mitigating hematoma expansion and then also on the other side, um, having enough perfusion to salvageable tissue, not making uh, the injury worse. So kind of the big trials when I think about leading up to this, uh, first one being in 2008, the original Interact trial. So they looked at SBP in the 140s to 150s. Um, versus 150s and 160s when they had their uh, results that came out and showed a reduced growth in hematoma volume with a lower blood pressure group. Following that, in 2013, a study called ICH ADAPT, uh, their outcomes showed SBP of 140 in their intensive group versus 162. And that was interesting because they were looking at parahematomal cerebral blood flow. So were we injuring the salvageable tissue by dropping blood pressure into the 140s? And that kind of indicated that we probably were not doing that and it was safe. Um, the same year, Interact 2 comes out and the difference between the intensive and the usual group was an SVP of 150 versus 164 at one hour. And that showed no difference in death or major disability at 90 days. Um, and that was a big study we were looking for to try to see would this provide us with a final answer on where we should be aiming for blood pressure targets in ICH patients and it unfortunately didn't um, come up with those results. Interestingly, they did a postdoc analysis of Interact2, um, and those patients had a mean SVP upon arrival of 179. Their NIH was 11 with an ICH volume of 11, and they found that there was an adjusted, and uh, the adjusted analysis found an increase in odds of poor functional outcomes. If they had SVP over 140, blood glucose over 117, or temperature over 37.5, um, and prior warfarin use. Oh, man, that was great. That was like hitting all the highlights. Yeah, and it's it's funny that it's you don't realize until you dig into this that this all started in 2008, right, with the Interact trial and a little bit earlier. So we've been doing this for, for a little bit. And the only other trial to highlight right around the same time the Interact 2 trial came out, Attached 2 trial came out, um, basically randomizing. They, the, this trial did very intensive control, so 110 to 140 within four and a half hours versus standard care. And um, that trial found no difference in 90-day in death or disability, but the big piece I want to point out here, and that'll come into play when we talk about the Interact 3, is that 
In attach two, they stopped blood pressure treatment when the pressure was less than one ten. And in interact two, they stopped when they got less than one thirty. So put a we'll put a pin in that. Um, so as we kind of move into right, how did we get to bundled care in ICH? Because ultimately, that's what that's what this study is looking at um, in a sense. And you know, you mentioned the interact three trial, right? That discusses the post-hoc analysis and finding that those patients had an increased risk of of poor outcomes. But let's kind of take a step back. The authors highlight two studies that showed benefit with bundled care. So the the study that has the best evidence, that I would I'd argue the, the best design and things is the 2011 Australian study. So Keaton, what did that study find? Yeah, so this study came out in, like you said, 2011, um, and their goal was targeted management of fever, hyperglycemia, and swallowing dysfunction in stroke patients. There was a mix of ICH and ischemic stroke. Um, and their intervention group was found to be significantly less likely um, to have died or um, be dependent on so MRS greater than or equal to two at 90 days. Um, interestingly, when they, their number needed to treat was 6.4. Um, I did appreciate the study specifically calling out not only the support of the multidisciplinary team to making sure these measures were being taken care of, but the nurses specifically and having a crucial role in making sure these interventions were being taken care of. Um, and they did comment that severe strokes were underrepresented in this population, but I do think that they align with the previous studies we've been discussing so far. Yeah, there's a fantastic quote I want to take out of that. They, If you look in the literature, that sometimes you'll see this as the QASC study. Um, but they mention these three parameters were selected, right? Um, the the um, article nicknames them as FES, fever, sugar, swallowing, which I love. But the three parameters were selected because they involve multidisciplinary teamwork. So yeah, this will this will come back. Um, but the idea that that everyone can do it by themselves is uh, completely outdated. And I like that this study is agreeing with that. Um, the other is a, a 2019 before after study that basically found bundled care, including uh, anticoagulation reversal within 90 minutes and targeting a systolic pressure of 130 to 140 within six hours, reduced 30 day all cause mortality with that bundled care, but observational um, couldn't look at long-term outcomes, so um, we'll keep that in mind. So those two plus that post-hoc analysis that Keaton mentioned, that's how we got here. So I think the authors did a, a pretty good job justifying that trial design. So now we're at the point, so in researching um, uh, this article, this research um, publication, um, it was presented at ESOC, right? So it went to YouTube, and one of the um, one of the interviews when describing the Interact 3 said, this was the trial that increased my heart rate today. So I completely agree. So what we'll do is I'll go over some of the trial methodology and then Keaton will go over some of the results and then we'll kind of dive in, talk about some of the things that stood out to us. So the Interact 3 was an international multi-center prospective blinded outcome assessed stepped wedge cluster randomized that those four are the key phrases that when you talk about the stats of this trial that that'll come out in the randomized control trial so they describe it as a discovery implementation design meaning they were attempting to mirror the natural process of rolling out a new quality improvement project so um, there were four time periods and the hospitals were randomized to one of three sequences and basically that determined the time frame you implemented the bundle care at your institution 
So this took place in 10 countries and nine of them were lower middle income. So um, China, Brazil, uh, Vietnam, places like that with one high income country, Chile. Um, Hospitals were included if they had no or inconsistent ICH protocols. And in all the interviews, the authors point out This is a disease of the developing world, so the evidence is needed directly where the burden of disease is, i.e. the low- and middle-income countries. So that was the idea in in designing this Interact 3 study when when you listen to the authors. Now, patients were included if they were adult patients with presumed spontaneous ICH within six hours of onset between December 2017 and December 2021. Classic exclusion, right? If the bleeding's due to something else. If the bleeding was due to thrombolysis, They were excluded. Key point there. Um, Now the stats, right? I mentioned it's a stepped wedge cluster randomized trial. And one key point in this is just like everything, COVID kind of ruined it. Um, Not ruined it, but just put a a wrench in it. Um, Enrollment slowed towards the end. So the final phase was extended. So Todd Miano is joining us in just a bit to talk more about the statistics and really how can we interpret them in this setting. So pin in that as well, man. Our pin board's filling up here. Um, Looking at the patients that got enrolled, enrollment baseline characteristics here. So um, they enrolled just over 7,000 patients, but um, about 6,200 of them had primary outcome data. They had a median NIH of about 13, um, 15 mLs medium hematoma volume, about 30% IVH extension, right? So decent bleeds happening there. Now, uh, two points about the the patients themselves. So 90% of patients were of Han Chinese ethnicity and about 1% were on an anticoagulant. And then when we think about the bundled, our median systolic blood pressure is about 174 and our median blood glucose is 145. So we keep talking about this bundle, 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 right? So what did that look like here? So the components were blood pressure, blood glucose, temperature, and INR. And they maintained them for seven days. So for blood pressure, you within one hour... Uh, the goal was to get your blood pressure less than 140, and the treatment stopped once it hits 130. Um, the next bonus was get your blood glucose to target range. It just says ASAP, right, now. Um, so if they didn't have diabetes, 110 to 140 was their goal, and if they did, it was 140 to 180. Um, temperature less than 37.5 degrees Celsius within an hour, and warfarin reversal targeting an INR less than 1.5 within one hour. And the primary outcome was six-month functional recovery as measured by MRS scale. So the authors note that ICH typically requires a longer recovery time. And so if we extend instead of that classic three-month outcome and we go to six-month, maybe we'll see a difference. So, whew, all right, great methodology. Um, I wanted to kind of bring in why the authors made some of these changes. Um, Keaton, what did the Interact 3 authors ultimately find in their results? Yeah, so ultimately, when you look at the primary outcome, uh, like, you know, the likelihood of poor functional outcome at six months was lower in the care bundle group. It was an odds ratio of 0.86 with a 95% confidence interval between 0.76 to 0.97. So uh, at first look, it was a positive trial that showed benefit in this population by approaching it in a bundled manner. Uh, but it is interesting to kind of break down on what the bundled interventions look like. And you kind of alluded to what the patient population looked like in terms of how many of them needed to have an intervention from the bundled um, group. So specifically, we'll kind of just break it down how you you had uh, listed it out. So blood pressure control. So about 90% of patients had an SVP over uh, 140, which is not uncommon in this population. 
the bundle group, their blood SVP at one hour is 148 and at 24 hours is 136. The control group, slightly higher at one hour at 155. It was essentially the same at 139 at 24 hours. Uh, when you switch over to blood glucose control, about a third of the patients had um, hyperglycemia or blood glucose above the target that they had listed um, in their intervention. And there was a higher percentage of patients that obtained target at one hour, but they did comment that there was minimal difference throughout the day in what their blood glucose levels were. Um, when you look at fever control, less than 2% of patients had a temperature of over 37.5% um, in the uh, first 24 hours, and they showed no overall difference between groups during that time. Um, and then lastly, the anticoagulant piece. So for an INR greater than 1.4, about 0.8% of patients in the bundle group and 1.6% of patients in the usual care group. And there's a lot of information in the supplementary appendix. So if you sum your way through all the way to page 36, it does kind of break this down. And you do see that about 90% of patients were on warfarin and 10% are on rivaroxaban that were needing to be reversed. Um, secondary outcomes worth mentioning, uh, no differences in six-month mortality once they uh, controlled for baseline variables, um, no difference in 90-day death or disability, and then the adverse events, again, um, you would need to go to the supplementary appendix, pages 65 to 72, but they were 4% higher at 20% in the usual care group uh, compared to the bundle group. Yeah, a lot to, lot to unpack there. Um, let's we're going to we're going to have a discussion with Todd going into the statistics and then Keaton's going to come back and we're going to dive into these results and specifically this 200 plus page supplemental appendix. And with us now is Todd Miano, a critical care clinical pharmacist and assistant professor of epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Uh, Todd, thank you so much. Now, let's kind of get into it with kind of start us off with breaking down the statistics that the authors used in the Interact 3 trial. It's, it's a cluster randomized trial hybrid with a before and after study. It's basically a series of before and after studies. And what is the key limitation of a before and after study? Time. Time. Confounding by time, yeah. right? Um, and so what stepped wedge trials do is they, um, they, they, they take a cluster randomized trial approach and then add in this issue of, you know, risk for confounding by time. Um, and uh, so really, you know, they've kind of become, uh, you know, it's a cool new method and they're kind of in vogue. And But in most circumstances, if you have an intervention that you could test with a cluster randomized trial, that you could, that you could test with a step wedge trial, you generally could also test that with a standard parallel cluster randomized trial and do, and the latter would do a much better job of testing the question because it wouldn't be uh, at risk for this um, confounding from secular changes in, 
you know, lots of different things that might affect the outcome over time. So knowing all of that, how does the change in time affect our interpretation of these results? I know this is a podcast and so it's all verbal, but so this is, this is from their supplement and, yeah. um, yes, yes. I so, yep. so I've added in, I've added in these boxes. Uh, um, so, so their analysis, their analysis model. So what I will say is this is a, a good, this seems to be a pretty legit uh, research group in terms of the design of a stepped wedge trial. They seem to have done a good job. The statistical analyses were all pre-specified and, and, are, you know, were appropriate. Um, but, you know, my main issue with this study is this, the inherent limitations of this study design. Um, so, uh, so basically, right, they randomized the order of before and after studies. Yep. Um, and, um, and the idea is that over time, so, and they, so in their analysis model included a, an indicator for time, yep. a variable for time, and then a treatment group indicator, you know, um, intervention or control. And so what you can think of, what that model is doing essentially is kind of stratifying, you can think of it as stratifying the analysis um, by time. So each one of these boxes here, these vertical boxes is six months of time. And so for this analysis to work well, in each box, you want both red and blue. So that, um, in other oh, words, wow. all these yeah. red bars, all these red bars are serving as controls for the blue bars at that time point. And so you can see here there that's it's working well until the COVID pandemic hits. Right. And then there's this big gap in time. And then you get these later time periods. Right. See this blue, this last time period. There are no reds. Not a single. Right. Yep. So there. So this is like really strong potential confounding by time here. Right. So you've got you've got intervention periods that do not overlap in time with a control period at all. So if there's chain, meaningful change in, you know, anything related to um, how patients are cared for that would affect, uh, you know, ICH outcomes like a COVID pandemic where we shut down hospitals and we restrict access and we put everyone on isolation and all those things, um, then that, that could be residual confounding that you can't, that is, you know, that you just can't control regardless of the, you know, the details of the statistics. It's like, it's all right here in this figure. They did change their uh, analysis plan. They originally specified, you know, these time periods. Um, but they looked at this graph and they looked and they realized, man, this is, you know, we've got this issue of these prolonged periods and, and so we're going to try to adjust for time in a more granular way. And so, you know, that change in and of itself, I think was you know, probably a good choice. Um, but it, it just reflects the underlying issue um, that is problematic. 
so a related idea here is so they have this forest plot that shows a subgroup analyses in the full uh, protocol. And so two things that kind of stand out are um, if you look at the subgroup analyses by country, so nearly all, you know, most of the benefit is driven by Brazil, Peru, Chile, Mexico, Nigeria, those, that block of countries. Uh, so that, you know, the effect estimates for India and um, China are still, you know, on the protective side, but they're, they're meaningfully smaller than the overall, you know, the, the overall odds ratio was like 0.77. So, you know, uh, so the benefits driven in, in large part by this, this small block of countries. And also note that, you know, the benefit is driven by um, the time period after the pandemic. This is evidence that there's, there's residual confounding by time. And, and that's, you know, the, the, and this was just bad luck on their part. Um, so that the effect estimate that they have estimated may be somewhat inflated um, or biased uh, to towards looking more effective. What would make you go this route? What would make you choose this this stepped wedge trial versus the parallel group? Well, I, and there's a good paper. This is a nice paper that kind of reviews this. Um, so it's, uh, you know, th these are a couple authors that are kind of experts in this, in this area. The main arguments for, for using this is that if the intervention is such that, that the, the only way that you're going to get centers to participate in your trial is if they know that they're going to get the intervention at some point. Right. So the argument is that, well, mm -hmm. centers won't participate if they know that there's a chance that they'll be randomized to no intervention, that there's this perception that the benefit that the treatment likely works. Right. Or, you know, you know, what, what are reasons that a, a center would only want to participate if they get the intervention? Now, if you would have done just a standard parallel a uh, cluster randomized trial where you ran, where you just randomize these 122 hospitals to intervention or control all at the same time and then follow them forward for six months at the same time point there you're right there's no issue of this from like an ethical perspective of what justifies a randomized control trial is clinical equipoise meaning you know if you pulled a a hundred random clinicians, half generally half would say, I think it works. And the other half would say, I, I think it doesn't work. Right. There's genuine uncertainty. And the only way that we're going to uh, establish the answer is to randomize. Um, if there isn't clinical equipoise, then, you know, is it ethical to randomize? So if there's an intervention where everyone thinks, man, this works and this is what we should be doing. And so, so it's unethical to randomize patients into a 
cluster randomized controlled trial, would it be, why, how is it better to randomize them into getting it later? Right? Because that's essentially what this does is instead of randomizing it to, well, this center gets it or this center doesn't, it's randomizable. Well, this center is going to get it first and this center is going to get it maybe six months later. But if, if you don't feel comfortable randomizing patients uh, to not receiving it, well, you know, well, what about those, what about the, the thousands of patients that would maybe been out, could have received it earlier if you would have implemented it earlier, right? So it's, um, so to me, the, the, the ration, you know, the argument for this is somewhat, um, you know, you can challenge that, I, I think. I, you know, we should not view this evidence in the same way that we would a typical randomized controlled trial. This is not, I don't think we can view this as being as definitive. Um, in the same way that, it, you know, if there's a large observational study that was really well done, right? But at the end of the day, it's still observational and still, at, you know, at more risk for bias compared to a gold standard approach. That, that, that caveat, I think, also applies here, that um, it was a well-done, large-step wedge trial, uh, but th this approach is inherently more vulnerable to confounding bias from things happen changing over time, which seems to be particularly an issue here because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Todd, wrap us up. If you had 90 seconds to summarize the statistics and your takeaway of these Interact 3 statistics, what would those be? The benefit is really strong in Brazil, Peru, Chile, Mexico, and Nigeria. It's also strong after the COVID pandemic. And that those are, that's kind of what's driving the, the study. You know, those studies fall in this bottom right hand, you know, those sensors fall in this bottom right hand corner where um, you don't, right? There's only blue in this time period. There's no red. And so your ability to control for confounding is really compromised um, because there is an overlap. There isn't any overlap in time. Whereas in these other sections, right, in these earlier time periods, if you look at each box, you see both red and blue in each box, and that and that is how that is how this approach controls for the you know controls for potential confounding by time is overlap in time across centers, but here in this bottom right hand corner there is no overlap. And in fact, and what I would recommend to people is before you read, like if you were someone who hadn't read this clinical trial yet. You should read that methods paper first and then read, right, so that you're kind of prepared to interpret it. Listeners, you have homework. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, it won't be graded. There are no tests. So uh, everyone, you know, everyone gets an A. So. And if you didn't know, that's why Todd is the best. Um, what a breakdown of these statistics. Uh, now let's get back and dive into these Interact 3 results. 
Well, I'm glad Todd cleared things up with the statistics because I think if you were left with um, Keaton and I to try to explain it, I'm not sure that we would be as clear uh, moving into the results. But now uh, let's dive a little bit more into the study and first talk about the patients and specifically baseline characteristics and care they receive. So one thing Keaton, that stood out to me is that only 8% of patients were lost to follow-up in a six-month period while this was happening during COVID. So I feel like um, what a testament to the to the researchers and things there. So when you were looking at kind of some of the baseline characteristics of these, of these let's, we'll kind of go back and forth here. What are a couple of things that stood out to you? So I think one of the biggest things that stands out is the location of where most of the patients were. So you did mention that 90% of the patients were of Han Chinese ethnicity, um, which probably plays a role in terms of where the patients were being treated as a whole. And then um, other areas were just obviously the NIH of 13 and the volume of 12 uh, milliliters from the ICH volume in terms of how sick these patients were. Yeah, I mean the and we'll talk. I think that's you mentioned the um, their location. I agree. That was a big thing that I noticed as well. Um, the supplementary appendix. This is one of those annoying trials where it's really hard to get a feel for this study if you don't have that pulled up next to it because it feels like every figure or data point they give they have to reference in the supplementary appendix. And when you have a sheer amount of data like this, I understand that. Um, but a couple things that stood out. So the most common reason for trial exclusion was presentation greater than six hours. So if we're thinking of that, um, external validity seems pretty reasonable, right? They're not, they're not having other crazy, um, exclusion or anything like that. And a lot of them, right. It's almost 90% had a baseline MRS of like zero to one. So they were all high functioning coming in, um, in the supplementary appendix, it points out medications that they were on at baseline and specific was when you look at that um table or things keaton did any were there any medicines like home meds that stood out of like oh i expected more people to be on this or less or was there anything to to highlight it all from that perspective i think it just kind of shows you know, maybe the health of the patient population as a whole. So you said their modified ring when they came in was, was relatively good. Um, almost half of the patients were on antihypertensive. Um, less than 8% of the patients were on um, an anti-diabetic or blood glucose lowering agent. And you see that 1% of patients were on an anticoagulant. And that definitely stood out to me when you were looking at the results in terms of the percent of patients that had an INR over 1.5 needing reversal. Um, in the usual care group being slightly higher, I believe is 1.6%. Yeah. It, I mean, 3% of the, of a 7,000 patient studies on a statin, right? 5% on aspirin. So recognizing that these are just different patients. Um, other things that stood out by day seven, almost a quarter of them had had some quarter, some sort of decompressive surgery. About a quarter were intubated, and about 35% were in the ICU at some point. So um, some acuity of illness, right, but not everybody is going into the ICU and things. Um, yet, So this is kind of a perfect lead-in into our bundle analysis because you mentioned, right, 
the vast majority of people, 90% of them needed a blood pressure intervention. And then it plummets to 35 with blood glucose and then almost undetectable with interventions needed for temperature or anticoagulation. So specifically when we go and look into this bundle and looking at blood pressure, which looks like is driving a lot of this, did you think there was a specific finding um, or key point from the blood pressure analysis that stands out as something that we may need to keep an eye on um, with our ICH patients? To me, it's kind of just where they were at at one hour and at 24 hours. So they kind of were, when they were getting treated, SBCUs in the 140s to 150s, depending on if it was the bundle versus control. And if you look out to 24 hours, they're essentially both in the 130s. Um, when I was practicing and, you know, when I'm days that I, I'm able to round um, every once in a while, you know, in my mind, I think SBP of 130 to 150 in these patients and from the results of um, uh, from previous trials, you know, lowering it less than 130, you run the risk of end organ perfusion damage and increased risk of AKI in these patients. So I think it just maybe solidifies more the target range, but also being cognizant of where the bleed location is. And, you know, if it's infertentorial and you have, you know, um, less room for hematoma expansion, will that um, be something where you want to be tighter with your blood pressure control? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And when I'm looking at the, the analysis, you point out the early management is key. That's the thing that I saw. The, the biggest thing that stood out to me was time to systolic blood pressure of 140. And it was just over two hours in the bundled care group, and it's about four hours in that usual care group. You mentioned targeting that kind of 130 to 150. That's, that's what I think as well, right? And when they, when, they talk, when they pull up the median blood pressures, the bundle hit 140 at one hour, and the control is at 155. And... Most of these leveled out at 24 hours, right? The blood pressure kind of leveled out at 24 hours. The glucose, all those other things. So I think it really emphasizes how we need to make sure and we need to, to get, make sure that these are controlled early and that those clearly make, make a difference because they, they show like cur uh, curves between the blood pressure, the glucose and things in the supplementary appendix. And the blood pressure feels like it's the only real curve that shows big differences um, between the groups, you know, they mentioned the difference was about seven millimeters of mercury right at one hour. So the trial, of course, is statistically significant. Do you think that's clinically significant? Do you think it's the difference or do you think it's where it is in their range? There may be some clinical significance. I mean, it's important to note, you know, these studies, when you look back, exclude patients with SVP over 220. So it's hard when they're coming in and their SVP is over 220 to apply these and know if you're going to increase in organ damage due to that. And there's some retrospective studies that have hinted that that's probably the case. So I, I think it's, it shows that it's worth trying to get the blood pressure down into that goal of less than 140 at an hour. And it may be where you need to focus in the bundle care if you need to really um, focus on an area of treatment in addition to anticoagulation reversal, which we'll probably talk to you talk about shortly <laughs> that's gonna be a great way to end this bundle talk but i want to talk about blood glucose here for a second only 13 percent in the bundle group were in the target blood glucose range and it says half of that were in the usual care um 
So my question when I look at this, right, and, and we mentioned the low, um, like, home med usage of some of these things and how a lot of them didn't have tons of comorbidities, are do we think these are just healthier patients who have, the you know, blood glucose is, you know, 98, 105, so technically they're out of range, but they're not? Or or did the, the supplementary appendix or any of the info, were you able to, to find any info to help further um, our understanding of that? Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, maybe it, it kind of speaks to the health of the population when they came in with their ICH and you kind of commented on their home blood pressure medications so, uh, or their home medications in general. So I, I did, when I was peeking through the supplementary appendix, page 114 describes how they treated hyperglycemia. Um, and I, in my mind, I was just thinking the um, from a staffing issue, some of the, what you might run into. So the um, the bundled care, when they targeted that intensive um, blood glucose range, they started an insulin infusion. And then the control group, uh, they started an insulin infusion if the blood glucose was over 216. And interestingly, their goal, as long as I did the math correctly, was a blood glucose uh, between 180 and 216 while they were on their insulin infusion, which is higher than what we would target with less than 180. And you mentioned, do we think we're right? We're going to get to that about these studies using millimoles for their blood glucose values where we will come back to that. But that was, that was the value that, that I got as well. Um, you know, this, this really feels like, is this emphasizing just targeted early treatment with the differences in that early group that kind of wear off in that 24 hour, 72 hour time frame? I think so. I mean, when I think of this, this is, you know, just, generally good ICU care. Um, when we think across the board, no matter what the patient is, is you know, controlling fever, controlling blood glucose, um, re- you know, reversing coagulopathies. In my mind, those are kind of, you know, some basics that we look at every day, regardless of the initial disease state that we're dealing with. So the trial had a strange anticoagulation reversal strategy. And then the time to reversal was really weird. A quote that stood out in the same in the same YouTube video where the the um, gentleman talked about how this got his heart rate up. Someone was saying, "I don't take this as an anticoagulation reversal study at all." Um, I agree with that man, Keaton. Explain why. What was this? What? Why was they? Why was everything with their anticoagulation, especially if you're a pharmacist looking at that, looks so weird? Yeah. Second, that as well. Um, one, you have the, you know, less than 2% needing reversal at baseline. And, you, you know, usually you would think that maybe there would be a, a, per, a slightly higher percentage of patients uh, with anticoagulation on board that come in with an ICH. Um, and then if you look specifically how they dosed their PCC or, or what the options were, the dosing strategy doesn't align with at least what we would have in our package insert for um, prothrombin complex concentrate. So the options were 20 mL per kilo of FFP or 30 units per kilo of PCC, regardless of INR, plus 5 to 10 milligrams of vitamin K. Then at repeat INR, you could give an additional 30 units per kilo of PCC um, if they weren't at goal INR target. So essentially, you could give them up to 60 units per kilo when we would max out, at least in the U.S., uh, 50 units per kilo. 
And where do 30 units per kilo even come? I swear, every trial like this, I get a new number of like PCC dosing to remember. Like where did, I'm guessing there was a trial of 20 and 40 and they're like, hmm, I'm not sure. Let's split the difference and go right in the middle. Yeah, this kind of makes me think more along the lines of when we're reversing 10 A's and how there's some variation rather than with warfarin, but majority of these patients were on warfarin. So that's pretty straightforward, at least in the package insert on how we should be approaching dosing strategies. And I think something something to keep in mind too, these are low and middle income countries, right? A lot of them may not have as much access to PCC and some of those things. So that is something that, that I kind of um, just kept in mind. Now, we're going to have a little fun thing here because um, this trial, when you dive into it, it features some medicines, either names or um, dosing, that were strange. So we're going to have a medications abroad. We're going to have a little, a little thing where we talk about maybe some of the things that happen abroad. And specifically, so Urapidil. I had no clue what Urapidil was. Keaton, what is Urapidil and specifically... What was its role in this Interact 3 trial? So it is there. It is a uh, peripheral alpha-1 inhibitor. And specifically in this trial, it's their workhorse for blood pressure control. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's the number one agent used, 60%. I had heard about it in the previous Interact studies. Hadn't thought about it since because it's not approved for use in the United States. I mean, the, the the number two used one behind that was sodium nitroprusside, nipride. Whoa, what? Oh, my gosh, they're ICPs. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. All right, so Urapido was one. So the next one, ooh, I should have practiced the pronunciation of this, metamazole, but not methimazole, metamazole. So I learned that's an NSAID. Hmm. But what I didn't learn, Keaton, is it's an NSAID that's banned in the U.S. because of like fatal agranulocytosis, and that's why we don't use it here. Um, but that was part of their – so diving into – we're going to take a, a quick tangent because this was part of their cooling protocol. Um, so, Keaton, I want to ask you a would you rather or what do you think is more unpleasant – getting IV cold saline over 30 minutes or getting external cooling with calf packing for 60 minutes, which was their cooling strategy. Which one of those do you think would be more unpleasant? Personally, I think that calf packing sounds slightly more unpleasant. Mm. Yeah. What do you, that's just, yeah. Cause I mean, most of them are awake, right? What you, you had brought up, I wonder what their shivering rate is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, you know, when I, when I think of or I've seen the devices that we've trialed um, to maintain normothermia, they usually do have a generous amount of cooling pads that are attached across your body. So I just think cat packing is maybe the better way if it was to work. So you didn't have it all over your body, but um, yeah, there's just some some things that go with that. Uh, kind of you mentioned like shivering associated with that versus medication therapy or, um, like you said, IV cold saline. Okay. Tangent, tangent over. We're back into medications abroad. So the next one I have no info on, but 11% of patients received it. And all it says, it just says IV traditional Chinese medicine. So I don't know what that is, 
but ten, but but a tenth of the of the study got that in their in their usual. It appears like ICU care. Keaton, did you do you have any clue what that is? No, I tried to do some Google searching and didn't come across anything of substance. It, it would be nice to you know if someone's to write a review or at least hint to what that might be because it's it's interesting to think about how that may interact with the medications that we're giving patients. Um, and since the majority of that, or, you know, 10, up to 10% received a, uh, what that would have been may have some impact. If there's any international colleagues listening who would greatly appreciate some help at Pharmacy to Dose, help us out. Um, the last thing, um, neuropharmacists, close your ears, um, Keaton earmuffs. I'll let you know when it's safe to come back. Hydralazine infusions which non-China countries had in their protocol at 50 to 150 mics per minute. So, yikes. All right, earmuffs, Keaton, we're back. Whew. Okay. So, I was like, sometimes it's fun seeing some of the things that are standard of care in other countries, but yet, you know, if you suggested that here, you'd get some looks. Um, so, kind of closing us, kind of as we're moving towards the end here. So, in the presentation at ESOC, the authors called for an implementation campaign. Right? What's a way to um, help increase the awareness of this? So they recommended two. So I have a clear favorite, but I'm not gonna not gonna um, uh, spoil. So they used code ICH and ABC ICH. Which one do you like best? What should what should our the campaign move forward with its slogan as? So I was thinking about this. The only thing I can think about is if you're a patient visiting the hospital and you heard this overhead. And which one might make you laugh? Which, in my mind, A B C I C H, you'd think would just be word soup. But um, so I'm gonna have to go with code I C H. No, no, I thought you 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 let in as if oh everything you were saying were, was was bringing it perfect for A B C I C H. Oh no, okay, all right, listeners, we're gonna have to have a poll. We're gonna have to settle it for us. Code I C H versus A B C I C H because it's gonna be a fight to death between me and Keaton. I thought we were on the same page, Keaton. Ha. Okay. Um, <laughs> I already let you know. <laughs> okay. Ultimate takeaways, final analysis. So number one is bundled care back. You know, with sepsis and things, I think everyone was saying, mm, I don't know, like maybe bundles aren't the way to go, but right. What's, what's old is new again. So are, are bundles going to be the new thing we hear about for another decade? I think it's worth talking about it. Maybe not not as a bundled care, but in terms of just like good ICU care and having the resources to do that. So, you know, with this, you know, this is in my mind, this is an oversimplification is, you know, it was a lot of blood pressure control. And then you had some mixes of what we would normally do across the board. So blood glucose um, control, fever management, anticoagulation reversal. So um, I wouldn't be surprised in the future that we try to see if bundled care checklists start making a way back, especially in places that have limited resources to care for these patients. What I didn't know, um, the Dr. Craig Anderson, the co-PI of this, um, I'll put a link to the tweet, but the one of the um, Brazilian physicians, I believe, was interviewing him. And he said, if I have an ICH, I want to go to China and talked about how great like their care is. And and so much so that when you look, when you read the Interact 3 trial, it'll make a note about how there were some issues with implementation of the bundle. And then you, you pull an article, literally, the Chinese um, had 
such good care in their mind of ICHs and things that like they, there was pushback on implementing some of the things with this bundle, specifically blood pressure management. Um, so kind of, kind of interesting from there. All right, Keaton, I, I addressed this earlier, but do we really need to publish blood glucose in millimoles? Is me asking for our glucose as milligrams per deciliter, is that the same as like asking for pounds instead of kilograms? Or am, am I, uh, are they just publishing it wrong or am I wrong? I think the kilograms seems to be pretty... Uh, standard across the world. I agree that every time I read it in millimoles, I have to stop Google and uh, figure out how to convert it over. But I did crack the code and it's pretty simple. Um, you just have to multiply it by 18, I believe, which is potentially easier than uh, dividing by 2.2 to try to convert over to kilograms. Ah, oh, it's way better. So I can stop Googling to find that one website with the table that converts it over. So that's... Ugh. Look at that. All right, Keaton, you're back in. You're back in. I pushed you out. You're back in because you, you gave us the tip with that. So I appreciate that. Um, okay, a couple other things. Shout out to the local champions at each hospital. Basically, one of the requirements is, yes, you need to have no IC, uh, ICH protocols and things. But then there was a champion at each hospital who led the implementation of the bundle. If you've done that, you know how much work and how terrible it can be. And there was only a seven to 10 day training period in these hospitals had no protocol. So uh, shout out to our champions Um, and the importance of stroke units. So you hit on this, Keaton. How do you think how do you think this trial applies to our current hospital status where beds are like gold? You want them and you can't find them. I think it's kind of twofold. One is making sure that you're order sets in your EMR, at least aligned to what we need to care to look at in that critical golden hour up front and have medications in place so that we're able to treat perturbations in, um, you know, blood glucose, uh, temperature, anticoagulation reversal and blood pressure. Um, and then secondly is just thinking about where these patients should go. So, um, you know, the ED is a busy place, as you've mentioned, and I think that it's great to stabilize the patient, but it does help to get this get these patients to an ICU and help them have um, a set of eyes that are focused on the disease state that we're caring for. So there's you know future direction that you know hospitals will probably be taking in terms of potentially having blended acuity beds where you can push up a bed into an intermediate care or ICU bed, uh, depending on your limitations on bed space. Um, or even the possibility of transitioning a bed into more of a triage bed in an ICU, taking care of them in that immediate period, and then transferring them over to another ICU bed um, if you have the people in place to care for that. Yeah, I think that's um, a really important takeaway, and I think something that uh, hopefully comes from this is the importance of right the early early care and identification of a lot of those things that um, is harder to do in a unit that is not dedicated and sees these patients over and over and over again. Um, the last, the last note that I had that I wanted to shout out every protocol violation in a 10 country, 7,000 patient study was listed in the supplementary appendix. So respect major, minor, all those things, three pages of them. Um, so really, really did a great job. All the researchers here. 
So Keaton, close out with two questions. And I think to me, this is by far the biggest, my biggest question from this trial is can we take this information, these findings and apply them to U.S. patients who are being treated at a comprehensive stroke center where some of these things might already be happening? I think you can apply it in the sense that you should take another look at these specific parameters and how well of a, how good of a job you're doing in trying to meet these criteria. So, and, and with that, taking into consideration any operational constraints you have, so getting a reversal agent to bedside or having the right medications in your um, automated dispensing cabinet or PIXIS so that you can adequately treat the patient. So I think it's a it's a time to almost level set, make sure we have everything in place, our order sets look good, um, and make sure that we're giving the patients the best care we can at our comprehensive care centers. Yeah, well said, right? Trust but verify, right? Make sure what you're doing is is in line with some of these things. Um, so, Keaton, what's next? Where do you think, where do you think the future is um, with ICH management or specifically blood pressure, kind of wherever wherever you want to take it? Uh, that is a great question. Uh, I, I think the blood pressure management has kind of been, you know, through all the trials, it kind of, in my mind, still aims at that 130 to 150 goal. Um, I think that it's from an anticoagulation reversal, this didn't really help give us too much insight. So that is an area that trying to expedite to see if it impacts that and see if the resources we're putting forth um, to get that into the patient as quick as possible. Um, maybe it's another area. And then lastly, you know, a lot of the interventions we've had hasn't made the impact on intracerebral hemorrhage as we've seen on the ischemic stroke side. So looking at other factors um, such as nutrition or thinking a little bit more outside the box of how we can try to move the needle for these patients to improve morbidity and mortality. Yeah, it's going to take a team effort, right? You know, multidisciplinary approach. I think that is, that's the key, right? The author said it over and over and over again when, the, when Dr. Anderson was, was presenting this trial. He mentioned that these were fairly simple interventions that would just take some nursing care and attention. Well, we got to make sure that we have the nurses to be able to give them the care and attention, right? And to have the staffing and things that that requires. So I think on the surface, it is easy, right? We're not, this isn't some new study, some new you know, hematoma evacuation. These are things we can do with the bedside, but I think it's making sure we have the, the staff and resources to, to do that um, and make sure we're taking care of all those uh, other patients as well. I thought it's a, it's a really good quote from the authors that I want to end on. Um, this is a blood pressure trial is how they described interact three, but all that went wrong with previous trials, just controlling for other confounders was done right and address the problem about an inability to randomize patients to a standard of care. So, um, all in all, this is interact three tons of unpacking. I thought this was a great study and there will certainly be changes. I imagine based on the results of these, um, but Keaton, thank you so much for joining us. For the rapid reaction episode, helping the listeners unpack this new study and us highlighting some of those big things we make sure they uh, pay attention to. Uh, where can they? Where can the listeners find you on Twitter to reach out, let you know how awesome you did? Oh, well, first, thank you, Nick, for inviting me on the Pharmacy to Dose. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun experience. Um, and I, my Twitter handle is just my name, so at Keaton Smetana. Nothing too fancy. <laughs> 
Oh, that's perfect. I love when you can get the, the actual name, but uh, thanks again. Hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, another big thanks to Todd and Keaton. Uh, Pharmacy to Dose 2023 awards. Get those nominations in at Pharmacy to Dose, Pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com and Pharmacy to Dose.com. Reach out. Let me know what you think, what you're thinking. As always, the reference list with the articles discussed today and more is featured in that episode description as well as at PharmacyToDose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Usually the content and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. The user or patient should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care parent disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.